Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doralstown Presbyterian Church. As our podcast audience continues to grow, I want to thank our loyal listeners and welcome those who may have just recently found us. We know that life can quickly become busy, so this podcast offers an on-the-go opportunity to hear Sunday's sermon, along with the scripture lesson read by that day's lay leader or preacher. We also encourage you to visit our website at dtownpc.org to learn more about our church and all of our diverse ministries. Thank you for tuning in. This is a very meaningful scripture for me. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless. So they said to one another, let us tear it. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. The word of the Lord. Some of you are probably familiar with the new television series called The Gilded Age. Lori and I have enjoyed watching that series that depicts life among the upper crust of New York City in the late 19th century. It tells the story of a young woman named Marion Brooke, who after the death of her father moves to New York to live with two aunts who embody both the old money as well as a resistance to any change. Marion moves from a small community in Pennsylvania, Doylestown to be particular. And over the course of that nine-part series, one sees her story unfold through amazing costumes and dramatic plot lines, through over-the-top parties, 
and strictly enforced gender and social roles. Joined with some melodramatic dialogue that seems to wind itself throughout that show as well. It has been a fun kind of escapist show for us to watch. When the reality is that life during that era was very different. I recently read an article by Peter Marty, who is the publisher and editor of Christian Century, and describes how in reading a book about the history of Christmas, he came upon one particularly distressing chapter, as he said. It describes a late 19th century activity in which well-to-do New Yorkers paid admission to watch the city's poor people eat. These immense public dinners were held at the old Madison Square Garden during the holiday season with more than 20,000 in attendance. Billed as gala events, the dinners featured galleries and boxes filled with prosperous, well-fed people eager to gawk at hungry children eating. These public spectacles, Marty said, reeked of exploitation, of humiliation elevated to a spectator sport. An 1899 New York Times article with the headline, The Rich Saw Them Feast, told of, quote, pilgrims from the illimitable abodes of poverty and wretchedness waiting to enter Madison Square Garden for a meal while all paying spectators were seated. Men in high hats, women in costly wraps, many who had come in carriages and were gorgeously gowned and wore many diamonds. Marty went on to say, as if to keep the rich from mingling too closely with the poor, gifts for the children were dangled from ropes and lowered by pulley systems attached to the roof. After describing that abominable practice from a century in the past, he goes on to offer two examples from last December of when that same kind of public humiliation was happening in our era. And then he makes this biblical connection. Suffering abasement at the hands of others and then having that derision reach spectator sports status is something with which Jesus was well familiar. During these weeks of Lent, we have been focusing on moments in the gospel narrative when Jesus is being handed over from one group to another on his way to the cross. At each point along the way, that transition included pieces designed simply to humiliate Jesus. And so he was taken away as would be a common criminal from the Garden of Gethsemane. He was in the presence of the high priest and was interrogated as people could watch from outside. On the order of Pontius Pilate, he was flogged and then handed over to soldiers who mocked him, putting on a purple robe and a crown full of thorns while they shouted out words of false praise. 
And when we left that scene last week, we saw repeated times when Pilate has brought Jesus out to the crowd that is wanting to do away with him and how repeatedly they call for his death and the release of one who was known to be guilty. We pick up that point in the narrative today as we see the nadir of Jesus' public ridicule. For we're told that Pilate hands Jesus over and that that group forces Jesus to carry the horizontal beam of his cross on his back. As he is going along, we are told also that Pilate has placed this sign on the top of the cross that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, and has put it in the language of everyday people of the empire and of commerce. The chief priest, when they see that, say to Pilate, don't say that this is the king of the Jews. Say that he said that I am the king of the Jews. And in the only moment in the entire passion narrative, when Pilate stands up to those authorities, he says to them, what is written is written, and the sign remains. We are told from historians that crucifixion was not only a, a way of excruciating pain being suffered, but also a way for Rome to humiliate the convicted one in public. And so we know that the cross in Jesus' case was placed outside the city on a hill called Golgotha so that people could go by and read in their own language the charge so that it would be a kind of silent witness and warning to others who dared cross the empire. We also know, according to John, that the soldiers who placed him on the cross divided up his clothing, which was common, apparently, in that time, but they were left with a tunic. Historians let us know that many times the one who was crucified was also completely naked on the cross as a further act of public humiliation. And we don't know that in regards to Jesus. But what we do know is that this tunic, the last piece of clothing that would be next to the, sin, the skin, was of one piece of fabric. And so the soldier said, let's don't tear this one apart and divide it up. Let's cast lots. And so there they are underneath the cross, playing this game. And our text simply ends. And that's what the soldiers did. Next Sunday, we will focus on the moment that Jesus hands over his spirit and breathes the last. But we stop at this point, a moment that makes clear for us not only the excruciating pain that Jesus endured, but also the public ridicule that was included in each step leading up to the cross. As such, that moment makes clear to us these, these moments when there is this added level of suffering that gets brought upon people, some of their own making, some not, and inviting us to ponder moments like that today. Now, clearly, there aren't circumstances equivalent to what Jesus faced, and thankfully so. 
in our era any longer, but there are the other times when individuals can face this kind of public embarrassment and ridicule. With the start of Major League Baseball happening later this week, it reminded me of a story I heard years ago of a minor league manager who got so frustrated with performance of a center fielder during a particular game that he grounded the player and took the position in the field himself. It didn't turn out well. As the first ball that came in his direction took a bad hop and hit the manager in his mouth. The next one he lost in the glare of the sun until it landed off of his forehead. And the third one was this hard line drive that he charged toward and yet it missed his gloved hand that was outstretched and instead smacked him in the eye. Hearing of that account brings back some painful memories of my own Little League experience. But this story isn't about me. For finally, when that inning came to an end, the manager charged into the dugout and said to the center fielder, you've gotten that position so messed up, even I can't straighten it out. (laughs) Clearly, his own public humiliation was nothing like that which Jesus endured. And yet, those two accounts suggest to me that there are these other moments that happen around us to which the events at Golgotha can speak. And sometimes it happens when a student very bravely answered a teacher's question in the classroom but entirely missed what was being asked and the classmates begin to laugh And that ridicule endures for days at the lunchroom table. Sometimes it occurs when individuals carry out some action that seems inconsistent with their key values. Consider, for instance, the events at the Oscars last Sunday when a Philadelphia native who was about to receive the award for Best Actor stormed the stage and slapped a presenter because, in a joke, he had defamed his wife. Or think about those moments when people take a risk, maybe in matters of the heart, maybe in investing in Bitcoin, maybe in standing for public office, and it doesn't turn out well. And in all those kinds of settings, and many more, there can follow this kind of ridicule, this humiliation. And in this era of social media, it rises to a level that previous generations could never have imagined. On the one hand, to speak of any of those kinds of moments and compare it to what Jesus endured seems ludicrous as those moments for us do not end in death. And yet, I think there are still some instructive pieces from what was unfolding for Jesus in those painful hours of long ago. For part of what that narrative says to us is that if there are these moments when we are engaged in the ridicule of someone else, that it needs to stop. Without a doubt, there are times when people carry out behavior that embarrasses them, and and we might appropriately shake our head or talk about it to a loved one, But that doesn't rise to the level of what the narrative is depicting in which people are joining in and adding to that sense of public humiliation 
And so part of what that scene says to us is that we are to resist being part of those kinds of occasions, and if we find ourselves in one of them now, to cease. And yet there's a very different message for those who have found themselves on the receiving end of that kind of ridicule. For the people who are facing that now or who still have vivid memories of it having occurred in the past, there is something else those events proclaim. Again, it is Martin Marty who says this, that crowds publicly mocked, taunted, and ridiculed Jesus is central to the biblical narratives. What he did with this humiliation, though, he said, is fascinating. Jesus let things be done to him. Henry Nouwen once wrote in defining the word passion. Jesus did this, Marty said, for the sake of turning this humiliation into love and care for humiliated others. As people cast lots or threw dice for his clothing, an uncommonly explicit example of humiliation as sport, Jesus assumed the mockery unto himself in such a way that others could witness his total absence of self-importance and in the end encounter his deepest self. In other words, in the midst of all of those publicly humiliating events that preceded and resulted in the cross, Jesus took that all on. And that just as he could have stopped the crucifixion if he had chosen to do so, just as he could have halted all object of public ridicule, he himself bore it for you and me. Which means that his crucifixion was not only one that redeemed our death, but redeemed those moments in our life when we too have faced public or private heartache. Let us pray. We are humbled beyond measure, O oh God, by the gift your Son offered for us by the strength that he embodied and by the pain he endured on our behalf. Help us once again to claim the incredible nature of that gift and to respond in ways that bring you glory and honor. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. Once again, I invite you to check out dtownpc.org for information about our worship and programming for all ages.